Welcome to Her Half of History, an evergreen podcast. My name is Lori. A big thank you today to Luis and Mika. Luis and Mika are wonderful people who recently signed up as Patreon supporters. If you too would like to help keep the show running and also get side benefits like bonus episodes, head over to the website herhalfofhistory.com for links to do just that. The current series is The History of Girlhood, and this is episode 11.10, Girls at Work. Pretty much every history of child labor includes the statement, children have always worked. And that is true. Some of those histories go on to say, but it didn't really become a big deal until the Industrial Revolution, and that is nonsense. The reason they say that is because everyone agrees that a child helping out on the family farm or in the family shop is fine. Good, even. We have this mental image of boys learning craftsman skills under their father's watchful gaze and girls learning domestic skills under mother's gentle tutelage. Everyone benefiting from good, solid work ethic and loving family values that will stand them in good stead for future life. It's all very idyllic, very little house on the prairie slash farmer boyish. It's beautiful and it did happen for some kids. But a lot of kids were not having that experience. For starters, not every family is so all-fired loving, but I'm ignoring that for today. This episode is about the enormous number of kids for whom that whole image is wrong, loving family or not. As I have said I don't know how many times during this series, girls' lives go mostly undocumented, but we know that some of them were working very, very hard long before the Industrial Revolution got going. Sometimes we know about it from archaeological evidence. For example, when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, the ash buried Pompeii, as you likely know. It also buried the wealthier seaside resort town of Herculaneum. Picture wealthy seaside resort in your minds, and then picture how much work is involved in running a place like that. Then ponder how 11.5% of the child skeletons recovered in Herculaneum already had bone lesions that only grow after years of hard, repetitive manual labor. Sometimes we know about child labor through legal statutes. Back in the day, child labor laws weren't about protecting kids from exploitation. They were about sending kids into exploitation. For example, a 1575 English statute set aside public funds to employ poor children under the theory that it would, quote, accustom them to labor and afford a prophylactic against vagabonds and paupers, unquote. The firm implication in this and many other documents is that if an area has a problem with the homeless or the unemployed of any age, it is definitely because those people are too lazy to work. How could there possibly be any other reason? Seventy-five years later, the colonial legislature of Virginia made laws to set up workhouses for poor children to prevent the, quote, sloth and idleness wherewith such young children are easily corrupted, end quote. Indeed, idleness was the great evil to be avoided, not exploitation. Parental advice was more likely to be about not indulging your children than it was to be about overscheduling them. There are also regulations on the record for apprenticeships. Most apprentices were boys, for the simple reason that most of the trades were for boys. But girls were sometimes apprenticed in silk making, embroidery, and tailoring. By definition, an apprenticeship meant leaving home and family and putting yourself entirely at the mercy of the master. 
The regulations say the minimum age was 14, but no one was enforcing that. Apprentices might well be younger. Actually, the existence of the regulation practically proves that. We generally only make laws when we don't like the decisions people are making naturally. Terms of apprenticeship were usually for seven years, and it was much like a term of indenture. Supposedly, an apprenticeship was both work and education, but it was the work part that made it worthwhile for the master. The situation was simply perfect for abuse and exploitation. Speaking of abuse and exploitation, sometimes we know about child labor merely from extrapolation. It is true that pretty much all of the detailed accounts of a girlhood in slavery are from after the Industrial Revolution. But we know that girls were slaves long before that. If the likes of Harriet Tubman, Elizabeth Keckley, and Harriet Hemings spent their girlhoods at work, why would we expect their predecessors' lives to be any different? Actually, if you look at the lives of slaves, they mostly weren't working in industrialized fields. They were still doing all that labor by hand. Generally speaking, slave owners are not the drivers of technological process. When you're already heavily invested in human labor, why would you heavily invest in machines that would make your humans obsolete? It doesn't make sense. So we can feel pretty confident that the work of slave girls in the 19th century, which we know about, was pretty similar to the work of slave girls in previous eras. More about that will be sprinkled through the rest of this episode, but I want to add that many of the slave experiences of hard work and harsh punishment were not unique to slaves. Poor children of every color and legal status had similar stories to tell. And finally, sometimes we know about child labor from linguistic evidence. In English, a maid is a servant, always female, who cleans and fetches and carries and basically does all the tasks her employer doesn't want to do. The same word is used to describe girls generally. A maid or a maiden is a young, unmarried, virginal girl, which is a clue to how old the servants often were. In medieval Europe, it was common practice to send your daughters to serve in a household of a status higher than your own. For lower-class girls, this meant hard domestic labor, not under the gaze of your gentle mother, but under the gaze of strangers who might take a liking to you and raise your social status. But then again, they might not. Even upper-class girls might be sent away from their own families to a foster family. It is true that these girls were probably not given the worst job. To be a lady-in-waiting was a serious step up from being the laundry girl, but it still meant being constantly at the queen's beck and call, fetching this, removing that, and delivering messages. It was still a form of work, though admittedly much better than what the lower class girls were doing. Like apprenticeships, the situation was a perfect setting for abuse of various kinds. Maids commonly began work at ages 12 to 14. That was the mentioned and recommended age, but there was no enforcement, and often they were far younger than that. Many of them came straight from having done very similar work in their own homes. Employers liked young servants because young servants were cheap. Sometimes you didn't have to provide them with anything but bed and board. Records of servants usually don't mention how old the servant was. But once you realize how likely they were to be young, it does put a different light on the frequent complaint that servants were stupid and lazy. In many cases, what they really were was young and inexperienced. And I do have proof on that, or at least an anecdote on that from none other than Harriet Tubman. She recalled that at the ripe old age of six or seven, she was sent to be a house servant for a young Miss Susan. Harriet, completely untrained, was told to sweep and dust. 
She did so, sweeping with all her strength, which sent clouds of the floor dirt up into the air where it gradually settled down on the furniture she had just dusted. Miss Susan returned and, seeing all the dirt everywhere, assumed that Harriet had simply disobeyed her and began whipping her. Not until Susan's sister came to see what all the screaming was about did anyone teach Harriet how to do the job. Domestic servants continued to be commonplace well into the 20th century. In 1900, Britain raised the age for leaving school all the way up to 12 years old. But girls younger than that could be hired very cheaply to go to school part-time and then work as a maid for not more than 27 and a half hours per week. Not sure why the half is in there, but it is. For full-time maids, the hours were much, much longer than that. In 1910, the Every Woman's Encyclopedia gave a suggested work schedule for a small household with father, mother, one child, and one maid. The maid is to rise at 6 a.m. and start work immediately. She is busy every hour of the day until 9.45 p.m., though underneath the schedule a note does graciously allow that the mistress should ensure the maid has an hour off each afternoon or evening for writing letters, reading, or going on some errand of her own. Where that hour is supposed to fall is a mystery to me, since the schedule is pretty full. At 9.45, a maid can deliver hot water to all the bedrooms before collapsing into her own bed. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. already done a whole series on housework, so I'm not going to go over all the tasks that domestic service entailed, but rest assured there were girls helping or even entirely responsible for laundry, sewing, lighting, cleaning, shopping, taking out the trash, and cooking. There are also some other traditional girls' jobs that I didn't cover in Series 7, so let's talk about a few of those. First up, as a girl, you might spend a good part of your time carrying water. This is the kind of thing that really never makes it into the historical record because the girls doing it were almost never literate, and the writers receiving the water paid no attention to how it got to them. But when we look at the modern anthropological studies of communities without running water, what do we see? We see girls carrying water. For example, in six rural villages in Limpopo Province, South Africa, researchers in 2008 observed 22 women and 12 girls carrying water as opposed to only one man and four boys doing the same. The youngest child was six years old. Eleven of the sixteen total children did this with no adult supervision. Most of them did it in containers carried on their heads. The minimum distance observed was 40 meters, or about 130 feet. The maximum distance observed was 650 meters, or almost half a mile. 
Some water carriers did this once a day. Some did it eight times per day. Some carried only eight pounds at a time, that's roughly one gallon's worth. Others carried up to 60 pounds, that's 27 kilos at a time, or almost eight gallons worth on each trip. Consider that the average American family uses more than 300 gallons of water per day. I, for one, would use a lot less if I had to carry it all in, but even at the minimum consumption levels, we're talking about a massive time commitment. Also a massive health hazard. That study in Lumpopo was actually about spinal injuries. You won't be surprised that girls and women who do this report higher than average levels of neck and back pain. Carrying water wasn't just for girls who lived in remote villages, either. In the supposedly enlightened 20th century, a British maid-of-all-work named Lillian Westall broke down under the strain of carrying hot water up and down stairs in a small household. A single maid in such a household was estimated to carry three tons of water per week. As Lillian herself commented, This sort of work needed the stamina of an ox, and years of semi-starvation meant I hadn't this sort of strength. Another task for young girls could be watching these still younger children. This one maybe doesn't sound so bad, right? But when I say young girls, I mean really young. The idea that the pre-industrial mom was always at home is just wrong in many cases. A great many women worked in ways that did not allow them to simultaneously watch their children. For example, Harriet Tubman's mother left the slave cabin every morning because she was a cook up at the owner's house. At the grand age of five, Harriet's job was to babysit. Here's her memory of it. I had a nice frolic with that baby, swinging him all around, his feet in the dress, and his little head and arms touching the floor because I was too small to hold him higher. It was late nights before my mother got home, and when he'd get worrying, I'd cut a fat chunk of pork and toast it on the coals and put it in his mouth. One night he went to sleep with that hanging out, and when my mother come home, she thought I'd done killed him. Harriet's memory of this may be pleasant, but the modern mind boggles at leaving a five-year-old to handle knives, fire, and not just one, but actually two children smaller than herself. But what else could her mother do? The situation was not uncommon. Harriet doesn't mention whether her mother was angry with her over that scare. The mistress probably never knew. But the mistress probably did know when it was her own child at risk. Elizabeth Keckley was all of four years old when she was assigned to rock the cradle of her mistress's baby. Elizabeth was eager to please, maybe even over-eager and excitable. She later recounted, I began to rock the cradle most industriously when, lo, out-pitched little pet onto the floor. I instantly cried out, Oh, the baby is on the floor! And not knowing what to do, I seized the fire shovel in my perplexity and was trying to shovel up my tender charge when my mistress called to me to let the child alone, and then ordered that I be taken out and lashed for my carelessness. This was the first time I was punished in this cruel way, but not the last. You do wonder whether the mistress ever thought that possibly it was her fault for leaving a four-year-old in charge. So far, all of the work I've mentioned fits neatly into women's work. But an enormous lot of girls were doing work that we, safe within our gender stereotypes, assume was for the boys and men. A lot of girls were out in the fields doing agricultural labor. Slave girls like Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth certainly were. Native American girls also were. Mary Jemison was white, but in 1755 she was kidnapped by Native Americans who adopted her. Her memoir reported that all children, both boys and girls, helped plant, tend, and harvest the corn. It might not have been much different if she had not been kidnapped. 
A century earlier, a popular song in England warned British girls against going to the colonies, where they'll spend their life with the axe, the hoe, the plow, and the cart. The chorus goes, When that I was weary, 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 oh. There's a lot of wearies in there. These girls were probably indentured servants, living, working, and frequently dying a long way from any loving family. Even those who were lucky enough to be in one of those loving, semi-prosperous families were doing more agricultural work than you might imagine. A relative of my own, born in 1890 and not in any way a slave or a servant, mentioned that she and her sisters got up early every morning to milk eight cows, feed 30 sheep, and a horse before walking to school, which started at nine. They did the same again at night before bedtime, and that's on top of being asked to help around the house with the more traditionally feminine tasks. Makes you wonder if your own teenagers have a right to complain, doesn't it? Now, if you are noticing that almost all my examples are actually from post-industrial times, well, yes, I noticed that too. And it wasn't for lack of looking. Unfortunately, earlier ages didn't find poor children's lives sufficiently interesting to give us much in the way of details. But so far, these girls have all been doing tasks that have needed to be done from time immemorial. These weren't new jobs, and children had been doing them for millennia. But something changed with the Industrial Revolution, right? The reformers who started railing against child labor certainly thought so. But as you've seen, the Industrial Revolution didn't invent child labor. It didn't invent long hours, separation from family, tedious jobs, physical danger, or harsh treatment. All of that was already in place, and no one seemed to think it was a problem worth mentioning. The initial responses to industrialized child labor were positive. In 1789, a petition for a new cotton factory said such a development would, quote, afford employment to a great number of women and children, many of whom will be otherwise useless, if not burdensome, to society, end quote. In 1791, Alexander Hamilton, always a fan of development, said that manufacturing was great because it rendered children more useful than they would otherwise be. And one newspaper noted with delight that factory work didn't require hiring able-bodied men. In fact, it is, quote, better done by little girls from 6 to 12 years old, end quote. Many of the early industrialized workers were also delighted to see why you only have to look at where they were coming from. Girls who had worked hard for their parents or as domestic servants had never experienced a moment of their lives when their behavior and decisions were not scrutinized by their mother or mistress. At a factory, you might work a 12-hour shift six days a week, but the other 12 hours of each day were your own. Many girls had also never had any spending power to speak of before. Any amount of spending money is exciting when you're coming from working hard on the family farm for nothing but room and board. Plenty of other girls were proud to hand over their wages to their family. They felt good about being fully capable contributors to their family's survival. For some, this felt like freedom. The work itself was also considered to be relatively light. For example, the most common job for a girl in a cotton mill was that of a spinner. A spinner's job was to walk up and down the aisles, brushing lint away from the machinery and watching for breaks in the thread. If the spinner saw a break, her job was to tie up the ends. That's it. That's the whole job. Surely everyone agrees that that is much less physically demanding than hauling three tons of water every week, right? All in all, the industrial bosses gave themselves a generous pat on the back for being altruistic benefactors. 
They were bringing bread to the hungry, work to the idle, hope to the widows and the fatherless, stability and prosperity to the community. The fact that they were also making money hand over fist was pretty great too, but they would have been righteously offended to have anyone suggest that money was their only motivation. Back in episode 4.1 on the history of slavery, I mentioned that the strangest thing about all the early source documents is the almost total lack of any moral hand-wringing about it. There's an occasional comment about how masters should treat their slaves well, but it took a very, very long time before anyone suggested that the institution itself was at fault. That maybe there just shouldn't be slaves, regardless of how you treat them. That's true for slavery, and it's even more true for child labor, whether as slaves or not. The silence in the record on that subject is deafening. Sometimes things don't get written down because they are rare or absent. But at other times they don't get recorded because they are so commonplace, so taken for granted that no one thinks to mention it. Child labor is one of those things. As the historian Mary Beard put it, child labor was the norm. It was not a problem or even a category that most people would have understood. It is true that the Industrial Revolution created jobs for children that had never before existed, but the real change was in the Western view of childhood. The new view had people looking at hardworking children and asking, is that really what a girl should be doing with her time? Is useful versus burdensome really the measuring stick we want to use for judging the youngest among us? Forget what's best for society, let's start asking what's best for the children. That was a new way of looking at things, and one that was highly contentious. My sources today are very scattered, but they are listed on the website at herhalfofhistory.com. The website also has a transcript and pictures, plus links to sign up on Patreon or Into History or Buy Me a Coffee if you're able to spare a few dollars to help keep things running around here. I've had a couple of questions lately about ad-free episodes. Currently, Into History is the place to go for that, and mine isn't the only ad-free podcast you'll get there. Next week, the story of Girls at Work will continue because those Westerners with their new ideas about childhood took a good hard look at the spinners in the cotton mills, the vegetable peelers in the canneries, the artificial flower makers in the sweatshops, the vendors on the city streets, and more. Some, but not all of the people who actually looked, were appalled at what they saw. That story is next week. Don't miss it. Thanks. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.